0: You are listening to the AI Ready Healthcare podcast. I'm your host, Anit bon. I lead a research group in Technical University of Darmstadt in Germany, where we translate AI solutions to problems in image-guided diagnosis and surgery. The purpose of this podcast is to connect the physician-scientists and healthcare professionals with the advanced AI research from the Mikai Society. Here I talk to fellow scientists from both communities about the translational aspects of AI in healthcare. Opinion is whoever said it. Anything said here is not medical advice. Together let's make healthcare AI ready like a bird on the wire like a drunk in midnight choir i have tried in my way to be free like a worm on a hook like a knight from some old-fashioned book i have saved all my ribbons for thee If I, if I have been unkind, I hope that you can just let it go by. If I, if I have been untrue, I hope you know it was never to you. Like a baby stillborn, like a beast with his horn, I have torn everyone who reached out for me. But I swear by this song, and by all that I have done wrong, I will make it all up to thee. I saw a beggar leaning on his wooden crutch. He said to me, you must not ask for so much. And a pretty woman, leaning in her darkened door, she cried to me, hey! Why not ask for more? Oh, like a bard on the ware, Like a drunk in a midnight choir. I have tried in my way to be free. You are listening to Bard on the Ware by Leonard Cohen. And now we proceed to to today's episode of AI Ready Healthcare. Welcome everyone to the podcast AI Ready Healthcare. I'm Anirban and with me today we have Henry and it would be a wonderful session with someone whom I know quite personally as a friend, as a colleague, currently a professor, assistant professor in Istanbul Technical University, uh, Dr. Ilkay Oksuz. Ilka and I, we have a history of working together when we were working together in, in Professor Saftaris's lab in Italy, uh, in the beautiful city of Lucca, and we have a lot of fond memories from there. So yeah, I'm looking forward to today's chat. Welcome, Ilkay.
1: Hello, everyone. Thank you for inviting me, and I'm quite excited also today to talk with you about the perspectives on medical imaging. So, uh, I hope we will have a fruitful session together. Yeah, so probably
0: one thing that I know quite well, but most of the others who are listening, not so much, is the uh, becoming years of the assistant professor Ilkayoksu. So, yeah. you are someone from Istanbul and then Europe, back in Istanbul, South. These things
1: yeah. happen. Yeah, I mean it's it was quite a journey. Now, especially during COVID times, I've been thinking about these journeys all through and whether it would have been possible to become who am I right now if I started this in the middle of COVID or before COVID. So during COVID this would not have been possible. So in 2010, I finished my bachelor in the university right now, which I'm a professor of. And then I was looking for some directioning, actually. So I got lucky. There was a master's student scholarship available in a university in Turkey. I got in touch with them, I applied to them, and then I found myself in, in a big research grant in from, supported by Turkish Ministry of Science. And I did a two and a half years master's program on electronics engineering in general, but uh, my me- fundamental focus was medical image segmentation and registration, mostly on cardiac CT images. This basically gave me the chance to participate in some challenges in 2012. So my uh, supervisor was very forthcoming and had a novel ideas. So he wanted to integrate me into the Mikai society which I was not aware of at all, so thanks to his guidance, uh, I should name, uh, give his name, maybe Dr. Debrim uh, mm-hmm. Minai, who helped me a lot during that process, and then uh, basically I participated in an uh, ISBI challenge in 2012 on lung vessel segmentation, and then another challenge in Mikai 2012 in this nice. and these two challenges became journal papers, quarter journal papers after all, and my participation and also contribution to those was very fruitful for my career actually because that allowed me to take the next step in the upcoming years because coming from a let's say developing country and also not known schools internationally was a little problematic to look for PhD positions of course and. In order to get over the prejudices of people while they are looking at your CVs, to have some publications and visibility in top conferences is definitely a plus as a PhD student candidate. So this kind of helped me a lot during that process. Yeah. So I got good of actually good. I made a lot of applications. I followed Mikai Job Board, so that helped me a lot during these times. And I was applying basically all the possible PhD positions which had scholarship because I couldn't afford back then also the total cost of a PhD on my own. yeah. And so I got some interviews. So that was a big learning process for me too. So I got interviews from the top groups. So these people who seemed like legends to me. I had the chance to talk with them. Some of them rejected me. Some of them gave me... Uh, basically, uh, offers. But at a certain point, after a couple of, uh, basically, how can I say, disappointments, so I was very close to getting into tail So that was a very nice position. They even invited me. They paid my flight tickets and so. So I went to Rotterdam uh, to make presentations and get to know them. So I was feeling very positive about this because in my mind, I was already there, yeah? But then turned out to be negative outcome because they thought that I wasn't, how can I say, thinking out of the box enough Also, And basically what I did was they sent me an email on basically not accepting me, refusing my application. And the first thing I did, okay, what did you see negative in me? I won't take it in personal. Can you please tell me how can I improve myself and so on? So I try to look at this kind of negative experiences as a a part of you becoming yourself. So maybe for the people who are listening, that could be something nice too. So after that, I got a little disappointed actually, because being so close to Teodelf, PhD in Teodelf, is something, a, a dream of mine actually. But then I had a group which was quite interested in me, during that time due to those presentations and stuff. Yeah, my my supervisor, PhD supervisor Soto Saptaris was basically calling me via Skype three, four times, just willing willing me into coming to Italy for doing my PhD. And after that disappointment, I felt like, okay, this guy wants to work with me so much. So why don't I just take the chance? And I basically in two months, one and a half months, I did all the paperwork. Being a non-EU citizen, there is a lot of paperwork to go through for becoming a PhD student abroad. So you have to have your equivalent uh, degree certificates from Italian embassy and stuff like that. Uh, EU people won't understand these concepts, but non-EU people are very familiar with those struggles. And my journey also has a lot of this kind of struggles because i went to united states uk and each of them had a different process for visas and stuff so this was part of my journey too maybe if i talk too much please stop me but i have still more to go actually
0: no, absolutely go ahead i mean i just wanted to mention yeah it's like uh like what you said it's a very interesting thing that is not often talked about is learning from the bad experiences it's often that uh, when you open the internet and twitter is full of the success stories exactly. it's a very skewed look at the reality but yeah please go ahead yeah
1: i mean some conferences right now try to push for like failures in science workshops kind of things but people overlook that for sure like they always look what you achieved and so so those kind of failures are there i, I think people should not be afraid to try their chances and also learn from what's lacking from them. So that's what I try to do throughout my career. Of course, you can reach to up until a certain point. Yeah? So that started my PhD basically. So I didn't know the city I'm going to. So this city is called Luca, which is in Tuscany. I just Googled the city before I went there basically. just I bought a plane ticket, just check which airport is the closest. So I was completely blind. I didn't know how to say ciao before I went to Italy. So no Italian at all. So it was a really big journey for me. Like, And I came to this small city, small Italian city, in the middle of the night with the last train. So I couldn't figure out where to go. There wasn't anyone on the street. It was winter, Lucca, uh, which is a very small city. Especially uh, in off-season, it's not very crowded. In summer, you have a lot of people and a lot of English speakers. But during winter, you don't have anyone like that. So it was a weird experience. Then I get into the, so maybe I can talk about the PhD Institute a little. It's like a meritocratic institute where you have uh, a small number of accepted candidates. It's just postgraduate studies. So you don't have even master's students. You just have PhD students in the facility. So you have also, you are given dormitory and you are given food as a part of your scholarship on top of some salary. So it's a very competitive position, actually, for Italy. That got my attention, to be honest with you, like having so much included within the package. So you don't need to do much. You don't need to clean. You don't need to cook. You just need to do your job, do your research, take your classes, and so on. So it is founded by some uh, people who were a part of the MIT Economics Department, I think, mostly. So And they had some engineering professors there too afterwards. So I just became a part of that Institute. So that's where I also met Anirban, but he joined like two years later. And during that time, it sort of, he also aims very high impact journals and top conferences. So that was a perfect match in terms of the vision we had. Of course, the first year was a lot of courses. We had to take eight courses and so on. And then, then I focused more on publications, how can I make a name for myself and so on. Another good property of this institute is it gives you chances and additional scholarships to go abroad through visiting periods. So that gave me the opportunity to go to Yale University. So my professor had some contacts there who became my basically co-supervisor kind of thing seniors Papa Demetris in Yale Magnetic Resonance Research Center, and also Biomedical Imaging Group, part of that. Professor Papa Demetrius was very helpful throughout my journey there. Like I stayed like a year there. I had the difficulty with my health, so I had to take a pause in, during that time. That was in 2016. Then I was supposed to go back there. He offered me a postdoc, quasi postdoc position. Even though I haven't finished my PhD, I was about to be recruited there, actually which was really nice. But then I got coming back to this non-EU visa issues. Basically, US didn't give me a visa. I was there, I went to the United States four times, but this was supposed to be the fifth time. But for some reason, they haven't provided the visa. So I couldn't go at the end of the day. Maybe that turned out to be better, I don't know. But I applied twice and they haven't given me any reason and they didn't give me the visa. And after all, what I did was, my supervisor moved from Italy to Edinburgh, to Scotland. So I kind of followed him. So since the US thing didn't work out, so I stayed in Edinburgh for six, seven months, which was one of the best times of my research career. And also in terms of the countries I've lived, I really enjoyed Edinburgh, it was a lovely city, a lot of entertainment and so on. After that, the problem was my scholarship was running out, so I was trying to find a postdoc position. Even though my PhD didn't finish, they give you scholarships for three years in this Italian institute. So three years is usually not enough for a PhD. I know in UK people do that, but in other institutes it's not very common. So I looked for a PhD, I interviewed for two positions. Actually, I got both of them, so I was very happy to be in that position. I was lucky because those positions were... Exactly on the topic. Maybe we will talk a little about that too that I was working on. So they were both on cardiac MRI image analysis. So one of them was in Oxford. The other one was in King's College. So the King's College one was more image analysis and more deep learning type of stuff. So I just wanted to go in that direction. And I took that job. So I stayed there like two and a half years in a very productive project called SmartArt. It's still an ongoing project and I'm still working with the people over there. Yeah, and last 2020, February, I got an offer from uh, Istanbul Technical University alongside with a big grant, research grant from Turkey in order to reverse the brain drain. So they put this big grant. So they gave it gives me the opportunity to build a lab, get some students, scholarship for students. It's a big grant. So I, I was lucky enough to get this.
0: So I guess maybe one question from my side is, not often you find people in research who has seen so many different ways of doing research, basically. So Europe is different and even within Europe, Italy versus that British Isles is different, than America, you have stayed there. That again is different. Coming back from Turkey or coming back to Turkey and starting from Turkey, that's again. <laughs> You have seen, let's say, whatever you can think of.
1: I have to underline the fact that I finished German high school and I stayed one year in Technical University Darmstadt. So I know a lot about the German perspective. So I was educated like a German kid to start with. So actually, that's also a different animal, the German way to do science and science. How fundamental they are looking at science, and I that's definitely a different perspective. So the number of publications are usually not as important as in UK or something. In UK, it's more of a numbers game sometimes. Of course, quality is important, but it's a it's a very vicious competition in between the faculty members and so on. But in in Germany, maybe you have a little bit more space in doing more fundamental research. So that that's something I really like about German way of thinking. I already started comparing. So Italians Italians are similar to Turks in some sense that they love their coffee times. They love their chill, chilling atmosphere. Uh, but also if they are productive, they shy accordingly. So you can be a top name easier compared to other places if you have good collaborations and so on in countries like Italy or Turkey. So it gives you more opportunities. For example, this grant I got here, would have been very difficult for me to get in UK or Germany or so. It provides you, there is somewhat of a less cruel competition, so to say. So you have more of chances, to be honest with you. But of course, I mean, that differs from country to country. So maybe one final thing about US. US impressed me a lot in terms of the way they do research. They are very open. So when I went there, I was coming from Italy from a no-name institute into Yale University, in one of the top universities in the world. And I gave a seminar about what I do. And then after the seminar, like five, six different people approached me. They told me how much they are interested in what I do. And they want to work together. They talked about their own uh, challenges in the science. And they have open office space. They encourage interaction, especially we are doing interdisciplinary uh, work. So, I think that was really eye opening for me, my experience in the US, that they put people together who are coming from very different backgrounds and that stimulates uh, research ideas. And maybe I was in a hospital, so that's, what, that's one of the reasons, but I think that's the general way they do science and interdisciplinary science. Uh, that impressed me a lot. So, I think that was one of the positive things. Also in UK, there is something similar, I would say, which I haven't seen much. I didn't have a chance in Italy a lot. It's more many different divisions, let's say, of the departments and the interactions in between them are a little bit more limited, let's say. That's my experience, of course, maybe there are counter examples.
2: So one quick question, maybe just out of curiosity. So the two of you have been working together in Italy uh, for how long have you been working together?
1: Uh, exactly, I don't remember to go one and a half years, maybe if I'm not mistaken, maybe two years at most one and a half or two.
0: I stayed in Italy in exactly one year,
1: so okay, then one year, but then we continued working together, yeah. like yes. there was some leftover work, as we still work together. <laughs> But, yeah, uh, I mean, we
0: wrote a paper last month
1: together. Yeah. So. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. but I mean, Anirban was a postdoc there, so actually we turned his postdoc work into some additional papers, uh, book chapters even. so uh, that's kind of the that's why I always think like it's like more than one year because we had some residual work from the grant. I think that's that's how it works in academia, right? You have this leftover work, some of the collaborations you have. That's how it works. That one year was very productive. We always uh, joke with each other that we are the killer combo. Like, we never had a rejected paper together. I hope that stays the same way.
0: Yeah, I guess this is also funny because it, it really depends from people to people. So, I know people who are very uh, perfectionist. And then there, there are people like me who are like on the other side of that. So they try almost many things and fail at most of the things. And then uh, somehow we still write about it because you have to publish or you get perished. So, so that way it worked with Ilkay basically.
1: And, and that, that's a sensitive time period in your career that you are finishing your PhD, moving towards a postdoc you can't miss that time like you can't you have to be kind of perfect during that time and sometimes it's not only dependent on you because you are in a research atmosphere you have a professor that you work with so there are other factors that come into play my father always says 99 percent of the life is chance so don't look at those people who say i have done this i have done that so i think of course you make your own chances you have to try But luck plays a lot of role also in people's life. But you have to, the only thing you can do is try. Like you try and that decides as we say in Turkey. So that's why when people have higher positions or so, they shouldn't rely on them so much in that sense because some people get luckier in life. I consider myself very lucky. So all these failures I mentioned turned out to be very positive things in my life. For example, spending two and a half, three years in Italy changing me as a person. The way I look at life, like going to a restaurant, having some coffee, socializing with people, Other knows I socialize a lot with people in a coffee or something like that. So uh, that kind of helped me a lot to grow as a person. So that's definitely, I see things, even the negative things as meant to be. So they turned out to be positive at the end of today.
2: I read that sounds kind of relatable. I mean, I think that most of most of life is based on chance and also on privilege, of course. Of course.
1: <laughs> that's not so. the topic of this podcast, maybe, the privileges in life, economic <laughs> inequality. But that's definitely there. Yeah? I mean, you don't choose the family you were born into. So I was very lucky. My mom is an English teacher. My father is a very open-minded person. So they helped me a, a lot to shape me as a person too so yeah some factors are not stuff that you can change yeah but you can change something so it's good to focus on the changes you can do that's my attitude in research too if the, you get a bad review or something that's not something you can change much you should focus on the things you can change the comments to review and so so that's kind of the attitude uh, you should have also in research maybe we can talk a little about those two
2: which research questions are you currently trying to uh, to tackle?
1: Yeah, I mean, throughout my career in the last eight, nine years, I've been working on medical image analysis problems in general, but my fundamental focus has always been, for some reason or the other, cardiac challenges. So I started with that in master, so that gave birth to my PhD. And then that gave, my PhD gave birth to my postdoc, all being on cardiac problems. So I started with cardiac CT. My first challenge in my master years was segmenting coronary arteries and trying to figure out automatically the stenosis region in a cardiac plaque, whether the uh, patient needs some operation and helping people from mechanical engineering background, the hemodynamic analysis of the coronary arteries, so how much pressure is there in coronary arteries, whether that person needs operation. These stuff are usually invasive, and we were trying to develop some methods to generate non-invasive methods. So I'm quite happy today that there is some software available that you can only use CT images and come up with some pressure numbers within the coronary artery. So Heartflow is a very uh, pioneering company in this uh, applications, uh, which is based in San Francisco. So they have a very nice tool to do that uh, automatic segmentation and trying to do the um, hemodynamical analysis of the coronary arteries. So so that was one challenge I was quite interested in. And then I moved to Cardiac camera and uh, mostly registration and segmentation of the sequence. But nowadays, what I'm focused on after my postdoc, my postdoc was mostly focused on image quality. So this is this is an interesting phenomenon. So in computer vision also, there is a lot of literature on that. Usually, neglect like that, everyone is aware of this, of course, but even if you have an object detection task, segmentation task, or registration task, the first thing you deal with is the image itself. So if that image is low quality, for some reason, if there is some blurring or some other type of artifact which should not not be there. Whatever you can do is going to be uh, limited with the quality of the image. So, and in particular in medical images, there are a lot of factors. And when we are talking about heart, uh, there are even more factors because it's a moving organ by definition. So it's definitely difficult to acquire images of the heart to start with. And we are talking about multiple factors like breathing, or uh, ECG signal corruption, like uh, stuff like mistriggering, or if the patient has arrhythmia, for example, it's very difficult to acquire the good quality images of such patients. So my fundamental research interest that was in my postdoc and still is, is to detect such problematic images in a big data set. We are talking about thousands of data sets. For example, UK Biobank is a good example of that. And we don't want, this to be done manually so if we can utilize this as a rejection mechanism can we develop an algorithm automatically detect low quality images but of course that has other implications like okay if that's low quality should i just discard it so the follow-up idea here is can i basically correct those mistakes i have done so can i have an algorithm that can improve the uh, image quality, but then the image quality becomes a subjective measure, right? So if we are talking about a discrete definition, it, is it a binary zero-one thing, or can we think this as a more continuous measure? One proxy measure to evaluate the performance of your algorithm is how much can you improve the segmentation, for example, of that images, yeah? Because that's the final goal usually in a cardiac sequence, calculating ejection fraction. In brain, this could be something else, tumor volume or so. So these ideas apply to other organs probably. We haven't investigated. I think this might be some nice topic. There is some literature on this, but I think it's an ongoing issue. So can you basically have some educated guess uh, on the image quality utilizing this additional information? And while we are improving the image quality, while you are applying a correction algorithm, can you guide this process utilizing also the final outcome? So can you improve the image quality in such a way that it will improve the segmentation output? So they can basically aid each other. Or can you tune down one on one or the other? So because you have limited resources at the end of today as an algorithm developer. We have right now wonderful GPUs, but... Uh, it's always going to be not enough, right? In terms sort of data, too. So, can you have some smart mechanism to infuse that kind of information into your uh, image artifact correction kind of setup? Yeah. So, this is the mostly I am dealing with this uh, as a researcher nowadays. Can we have some uh, answers to this kind of questions?
0: So I guess one point, maybe uh, because this podcast is about AI ready healthcare for this particular podcast, this is a very important topic. I mean, I can't emphasize enough because most of the challenge data, publicly available data or even in-house data are coming from the university hospitals where there are like extremely high quality Mm -hmm. scanners very well-trained professionals if you go to the private services outside in the rural so this is something where ai has to come in handy like if there are not many people who are trying to solve this problem like you are doing ilkay then you should really motivate more people
1: (laughs) yeah i mean actually another one thank you for for this inputs like that's actually the main motivation so clean data sets yes But we call this in the wild in one of our our papers, like in the wild clinical setup, the stuff you have trained on, uh, this toy data sets, this clean data sets, will suffer Uh, no matter what there will be problems. So so there are some phenomena like domain adaptation, transfer learning. People have been trying to solve these problems. Like generalization as a concept is one field. There is a lot of push in general in computer vision literature and also... In particular, in medical imaging literature, too. So, can we generalize our algorithms' performance? So, of course, in CT, this is a little easier because there are some standards like house field units and so on. Of course, there will still be problems about artifacts there, too. So, that's a given. But in MRI, it becomes, it has a different, it's a different animal, so to say. Like, it's because you have all this. Intervendor problems, there is no consistency in terms of intensity patterns in between different machines. And I think more effort has to go into uh, this kind of quality analysis and understanding the fundamental differences in between those image data sets to uh, make AI ready for clinics, so to say, right? And of course, another important component, maybe we will talk slightly, I'm trying to put more effort into that is. We do research and we don't usually think how this will become a product because we are not, we don't have like startups, we don't ourselves, we just focus on the research side of the things. Being reasonable in that part as a researcher, having some collaborations with some startups or even big companies could be an eye opener. So this is something I'm trying to do nowadays in my career to have a perspective from a company like Philips Siemens or even a small uh, AI in radiology startup. So what can we improve from that perspective of the things? So this is something I am thinking a lot nowadays. And I am taking action on this. So like three hours ago, I was in a meeting in a the hospital. There is a startup, which is one of the few in Turkey that is working on early stroke detection, brain stroke detection uh, algorithm. They have a tool that is already in the tests in the hospital. So that sends an SMS to the radiologist. If there is a patient with stroke, uh, they can immediately be notified. And that has an impact, like that saves lives literally. You always claim to help on that department, but you see that they have done some good on this. Uh, I think that's something that's lacking in me and I want to improve probably.
0: So I guess maybe one question around the translational aspects, because this is very important point that you are making that most of the Mikai community is about dice score. <laughs> and let's improve the dice a little bit. We aver- even average dice, not to go more into which sort of patient are actually getting good quality versus bad quality segmentation even. So, so that's a very important thing, but I, I guess there are many several different aspects of making healthcare ai ready than just the model right so i mean model is sure one aspect but probably in the in the in retrospect not that important i mean there is this user experience design there is how much the doctors are open to to actually using the technology and even i mean there was Recently, a a big Twitter chat that something which is very obvious, which is supposed to help, which is clinically proven that, like, when you send such a a sort of warning system uh, about, I think, some one of the liver diseases, it should help. But, But then they showed that there is a significant difference between. The university hospital where the trial happened, and also the other normal non teaching hospital. So, basically, if it's a university hospital, it has a significant better performance. But when it goes to the non teaching, performance is actually degrading. So, I mean, what's your understanding?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I've seen from small examples to big examples, I've seen a lot in that department. So, working next to radiologists, together with them, especially radiologists who are open to work with AI researchers, is is really marvelous. Like, you learn so much with them. So for example, when I need to annotate an image, because we also do some manual annotation, especially as a bachelor or master student, you do a lot. So I was using tools like very common tools like ImageJ or ITK-SNAP. But when I try to make a doctor do the labeling in such a tool, they are so against it because they just want to utilize tools they are comfortable with. So it's there is a barrier there, like because they don't want to open each image, like literally each of them save the segmentation because they are used to those tools that are provided by big companies. And they want there is a way they want to manipulate delineations and so on. It's really a, a learning experience to listen to them. So you have to listen to them because at the end of the day, Those are the people who will be utilizing your technology. So trying to generate an interface that is going to be friendly with them is is, is a crucial point. I think your point was more on the inter-rater dependency of things, like how much it will be useful to translate from one clinic to another because they have different levels of expertise. How many years were they trained? And how much do they want to adjust is another thing, right? So some people are a little bit more resistant to this kind of technology. They have a lot of question marks about what it's doing. And it's difficult to find people, find radiologists who are open to this kind of collaboration because there is always this back thought in their mind, like, oh, what are they doing? Are they going to replace us in some way? Like uh, trying to, uh, if I'm going to be a p- part of this, how much of our job market is going to be influenced with this? But you have to show that there is positive things for them in this. Like they do daily work a lot, the same things over and over a lot. So if you can cut this somehow, Uh, into their benefits so you have to give them some bait basically you have to show them that they the technology you are developing can help them I think that's the way to encourage uh, clinicians to work with you I I think that's one of the main barriers also as a uh, young early career researcher to find clinicians who are willing to work with you they because they have time is really valuable like they do 24 hour work hours sometimes so they are very busy to have an open ear for people like you is something very important so i think you shouldn't miss those kind of chances so if i can say what would be what would be the most important collaboration you can find i think a collaboration where you have a clinician who listens to you who devotes a little bit of time in, in you is, is a very important collaboration, especially in medical image analysis kind of a field, because if you just talk with people like me and Anirvan, uh, we, we know up until a certain extent, yeah, right, about especially clinical problems, because uh, in order to understand the necessity of the current clinical setup, we have to talk to doctors. Uh, that's why this is research is interdisciplinary. For example, with the stuff I do a lot on reconstruction, that some field I'm very interested in, how can we make MRI scans faster without losing quality? I need physicians, like I need uh, people who are experts in MR physics. If I don't have them, my knowledge is limited up until a certain point. So, if I those kind of collaborations are vital to survive uh, in this field, probably maybe I pick the topic, took the topic, and take it to somewhere else. Uh, But I mean, I think these are relevant in terms of building a lab, how to proceed in your career and so on.
2: I think it's always a struggle for us computer scientists to communicate to people that the software we are developing is actually useful and um, really brings a benefit to their life. Would you have any general suggestions for uh, researchers? Yeah,
1: I think that collaboration uh, is difficult to build. The trust is difficult to build. I think you have to be very upfront and also very honest with your collaborators. So nowadays, due to the hype of deep learning and computer vision, People think we are doing magic, we are in magic business. I had a lot of people asking me about about an algorithm that finds things that they don't see. So they don't see the disease on the MRI or scan or something, and they hope that somewhat magically uh, the algorithm we deploy is going to find the clinical measures that are there and will uh, do the job. you have to keep the conversation in a uh, in a realistic way. Once you start a collaboration, very important point is you have to have a well-defined problem because we computer scientists have a different way of thinking. So we always ask, like, what is the input? What's the output? Like, okay, this is my way of thinking. We have to listen to the clinician and try to derive this ourselves. Usually it's rare to find clinicians who have this way of thinking. You have to just listen to them and try to, Figure out where you can make an impact yourself. Uh, You have to find your variables, you have to find your inputs and outputs. So, and you have to what you have to do is don't give fake promises, basically. Just know the limits of the algorithm you are going to deploy. And I think a good strategy is always to start from toy stuff, easy things, and if the collaboration goes on, and try to motivate the clinician too. So occasionally show them intermediate results, how this can be automated. So believe me, they, they, if they are not into this field, some stuff we can show can impress them a lot. So they would, and then they will, they will invest more time. So instead of an hour, you will get two hours every month. Try to uh, having uh, intermediate results and trying to motivate them. So you have to, unfortunately, you have to be the person that is providing the motivation to the collaborators of yours as a computer scientist. So uh, I think you shouldn't overlook the fact that we are in image business. So just reporting a couple of dice numbers or something is might not be that impressive. So trying to generate full visuals is going to be a good thing that can help your collaboration, uh, probably. How to find clinical collaborators from zero is, of course, a difficult question. If you ask me, I got lucky. So I had a PhD position opening. They've seen my ad in LinkedIn and they got in touch with me. So they found me, the clinical collaborators I have right now. So not everyone is as lucky as me. But I think due to the hype of deep learning and computer vision more and more radiologists and clinicians are aware of the fact that they have to come on board like so this is an advantage us like maybe five years ago we were the ones who were desperate for getting clinical help but i think nowadays i feel more and more like uh, they are also becoming a little desperate to get help from people who can code properly, have built models and talk with them, have experience in this field. So I think the future is bright for us.
0: Absolutely. No, I think for radiology, it's clear. In pathology, it's also becoming clearer that we will be working together in the coming future Henry unfortunately works more on surgery and there it's, it's still a bit off of how uh, we can help the surgeons out but we are we will be getting there I guess all the Kai people just stick yeah. together for a little bit longer yeah. the meat people are doing awesome you will also So I guess probably because we have lost one more question uh, before we have to end today's awesome conversation. So from my side, so let's say in a perfect world, you went back to your hometown, you are close to your parents, your family, and you have now a group that you are building for a few years. So in a perfect world, where do you see this leading to? Like, let's say in a five year down the line, you you have awesome clinical collaborators. So what sort of project, what sort of publications, what sort of research impact are you really be looking forward?
1: Yeah, I think that's a good question. Uh, You never have the chance to stop and ask yourself the question but there's always something pressing on your agenda. Uh, I think one important thing I want to do is clinical translation as much as I can. So having the right people, then again, we are coming back to the point of luck. So having the right people around you, the right PhD students, right postdocs who invest in this, you need help. Like when I was a postdoc, I was doing everything on my own. So I was on a grant, I was writing papers and that's it. But if you got into multiple projects and you are doing multiple projects with different collaborators, you need help. Getting that help is a crucial thing. So my vision is definitely I'm building something right now. So it's been a year. I'm struggling with finding the right people and building projects and so on. But what if I if this goes well, everything goes well. My vision is how can I uh, and then again develop algorithms that work on clinical setup. Like this is going to be important thing. And how much can, can I interact with uh, clinical people uh, in that department and how can I improve myself in expressing what we are doing to those kind of people is going to be very crucial for me. I mean we have, I see myself like usually in medical image analysis field we are utilizing mostly models that are already developed for other tasks and trying to show their utility for medical images but I want to take a step further if possible like Trying to sh- highlight the anatomy and medical side of the things a little bit more into the model descriptions we are doing. So, can we have a little bit more de- designated models for medical images and different anatomies? Is a key question I want to answer. Like, I don't want to use ResNet or UNet for everything, you see. So, can we have some kind of a smart idea infused into models or losses we define? Uh, that can improve the anatomical information. Thinking outside of the numbers game, this dice scores kind of a thing. I hope uh, we can make an impact as a group in the upcoming days uh, on that department.
0: Absolutely, we hope that as well. I guess maybe a sort of follow-up question from my side it's because we are so much into the mikai society per se and thinking like mikai way and there is somewhat little translational aspects of mikai so there is medical imaging and then there is mikai so mikai is more like computer scientists who are doing medical imaging when you are really trying to do that translational aspect so you still have to publish, right? So, what sort of easier publication strategy when you will be doing these translational things?
1: This is something I face with grant proposals nowadays, too. So, everything is rejected due to limited novelty. Like, this has become a very common reason. And I understand that. Like, people feel like, okay, this is just another network doing just another thing in that department, publication field department, that's going to be a struggle always. Like, how can you put on an idea that kind of makes a difference? It's a small difference, but makes a difference. So keeping the collaborations and clinical translation and doing publications, I think that's a very difficult task, yeah? So uh, I think that's a very valid question in that sense. So I don't have an answer for this, to be honest with you. Like, how can you, for example, you have like built a good graphical user interface you have built a nice uh, tool but in the background the model we are using is not super novel and so on so i don't have much experience with how can you turn this into a publication something can be academic in that side of the things so i have to learn probably i don't know uh, i don't have a perfect answer for this so uh, maybe that i will f- finish my transition to the faculty position if I learn how to do this kind of things. But yeah, I think keeping or attending and publishing in good conferences is definitely something you shouldn't neglect, like which helps you a lot. Of course, there's a lot of stuff going into this, but like a lot of bureaucracy going into this, a lot of sometimes even politics going into this. But I think it keeps you fresh, nothing fresher than going to a top conference and... Listening to other people's ideas and so, on. and so I'm looking forward to be in the field for the long run. Right.
0: Absolutely, yeah. We wish basically all the best for Mikhai. It's it's absolutely yes, awesome
1: around the corner
0: to go, and yeah. I don't know if we'll be in Strasbourg this year. I really hope we do because from Darmstadt you take a train and reach there. Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> But we don't know if that will be the case or we will be doing I anything. think it
1: will be difficult, especially for me. It's impossible.
0: Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, I mean, I completely agree that uh, going there in Mikai or any of the top conferences, maybe CVPR, maybe ICCV, those are really eye-opening experiences that you get so much of new ideas in such a condensed way. That's wonderful. I
1: can say the same thing for ISMRM, for example. Even though the topics are not in your field per se, it can be a huge eye-opener that so many people are working on MR in general and in parallel and together. I think as a young scientist, as a PhD student, master's student, those are really valuable experiences that stays with you for the rest of your career. So I think uh, you should take those kind of chances as a young researcher.
0: Absolutely. So on that note, let's thank ilkai once more for the very nice chat we had together. Thank you so much, ilkai It was a pleasure talking to you.
1: Thanks for having me, guys. I wish you success with the upcoming podcast.
2: Thank you very much. <laughs>
0: Thank you. Yeah. And all the best for upcoming Mikai deadlines and all the other deadlines that we are approaching. There are some <laughs> dark nights ahead, I guess. But yeah, all the best for that. Have fun, Ilkai. Ciao, ciao.
1: See you. Bye bye. Goodbye.